Welcome back to our study of First Kings. We are looking today at First Kings chapter six. Those of you who are watching on video can tell I'm in a different location. Uh, there have been some renovations going on in my office area this week, which I'm very grateful for and very excited about. And so I'm in a different spot uh, to make some room for that. But we're going to jump right into First Kings chapter six, and let me read for us the first ten verses. It says, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zev, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows and recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house he made offsets on the wall, in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by the stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now let's pause there. Now we saw last time in chapter 5 that Solomon was making preparations for the building of the temple. He entered into a treaty with uh, and a contract with Hiram, king of Tyre, uh, to secure the lumber necessary and some of the labor necessary for the building of the temple. He organized the labor in Israel for the building of the temple. And here in chapter 6, we see the actual construction of the temple. Now, uh, a couple things I want you to notice about these first few verses. One, notice that we're told in verse 1 that the date of the temple being constructed was 480 years after the exodus from Egypt. So the building of the temple is a massively significant event in the history of Israel, but it's not as significant as the exodus from Egypt. That was Israel's defining moment, the moment when God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, called them out and made them uh, made a covenant with them, and uh, they became his his treasured possession. And so uh, they mark the date of Solomon's construction of the temple from the exodus from Egypt. It had been 480 years. And what's part of what's significant about, it, about that is that ever since Israel had come out of Egypt, God had been dwelling in their midst in a tabernacle. Much of what the book of Exodus describes is not only the ten plagues and the exodus from Egypt, that takes up the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, but much of the rest of the book of Exodus is taken up with the instructions for the building of the tabernacle 
and then the actual completion of the tabernacle and the climax of the book, the closing moment of the book of Exodus is when God's presence uh, fills the tabernacle. There's a, a cloud of God's glory that fills the tabernacle and God comes to dwell with his people. And ever since then, God had been dwelling in a tent. And it's only now that God will be dwelling in the midst of Israel in a temple, in a permanent structure. And that's significant because whenever David initially uh, had the idea to build a temple for the Lord, uh, God made reference to this. So back in 2 Samuel 7, uh, it says, The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So David looked around and said, I have a really nice permanent house, but God is still dwelling in a tent, and that just seems wrong. And so David wanted to build a house for the Lord. But David didn't get to, obviously. Uh, he was told that his son would be the one to build the temple. But listen to what God says to David in response to this. Uh, again, in 2 Samuel 7, God says to Nathan the prophet, He says, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. So, uh, God says, look, I, I've been in a tent all along since the Exodus, and God has not asked anybody to build him a house, I think he goes on to say. Um, so this has been a long-standing thing that God has been dwelling in a, in a tent, uh, but now God has allowed for Solomon, David's son, to build him a temple to dwell in. So this, again, this is a significant moment in the history of the nation of Israel. You've got the exodus from Egypt, then the conquest of the promised land, then the beginning of the monarchy with Saul, and then to David, and now with the uh, the uh, completion of the temple. Those are some of the key moments in Israel's history. So we're at a significant point in the story of Scripture. And now notice what happens next. Verse 11 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So God reminds Solomon, look, you need to walk in my ways, you need to do what I say, you need to follow my word, and if you do that, then I will establish my word with you which I spoke which I spoke to David your father. So I'll do what I told David I would do, but you are responsible for uh, following me faithfully for doing what I say. And uh, he says, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So um, that's part of the deal too, that God is going to dwell in the temple um, and he's going to keep his word to Solomon. But Solomon also has a responsibility right, to obey what God says. Um, now here, this is directed particularly at, at Solomon, but we also know that later, God's presence in the temple is conditioned on Israel's obedience. So when they rebel against the Lord and they uh, commit idolatry and they turn their back on the Lord, what's God going to do? God is going to 
withdraw. He's going to leave the tabernacle, or excuse me, leave the temple and allow Israel's enemies to come and capture not only their land, but also destroy the temple itself. So it was not an automatic thing that um, now that they had the temple, um, that God would always be there dwelling in their midst and they could do whatever they want. And in Jeremiah's day, you can see this in Jeremiah chapter 7, I believe it is, there's some people who thought that way. Hey, we've got the temple. We just got to go to the temple and we'll be safe. Well, no, not if you're not repenting of your sin, not if you're not honoring the Lord. Um, and so uh, so God, in, in a sense, warns and exhorts Solomon uh, to be faithful. And of course, we know at the end of his life he wasn't, uh, but for much of his life he was. All right, let's keep going. Verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place, or sometimes you hear it uh, referred to as the holy of holies. Just different ways of translating the same thing. Verse 17, the house, that is, the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So that's the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is going to go. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. So notice that this room is itself a cube. We're going to come back to that. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. So, this is an, an incredible structure, this temple. And there's gold everywhere. It's a, a magnificent building. And it's meant to be holy. Um, and as we're going to see in the next uh, several verses, uh, it's also meant to recall the Garden of Eden. So notice, as I read the next set of verses, listen for um, imagery that would remind you of a, of a garden. All right, so verse 23. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. A cubit is about 18 inches. All right, so um, think about how big that is, right? Um, if it's 10 cubits long, 18 inches um, per cubit, is, these are big. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was 10 cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. So you got two cherubim 
one on each side touching uh, its wing touching the wall and then their wings touching each other in the middle so you've got they're, they're filling up the whole room from one side to the other verse 29 around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms the floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms for the entrance to the inner sanctuary he made doors of olive wood the lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. Now, the main thing I want you to notice in, in that long set of verses is how the uh, construction of the temple and the imagery in the temple is meant to recall the Garden of Eden. Some of you have heard me talk about this before. It's true of the the uh, tabernacle as well, but especially true here of the temple. Notice first that it, um, over and over and over uh, it mentions uh, flowers and gourds being carved into uh, the inside of the temple. And flowers and gourds, of course, remind you of a, of a garden, of a, of a beautiful, lush place. Um, also, there's pure gold um, all throughout the temple. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and you read the description of the Garden of Eden, uh, we're told that um, in one of the places that's associated with Eden, there's very good gold, very precious gold there. Also, the cherubim. This is really significant. The cherubim, um, you might recall in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden, God places a flaming sword and cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that Adam and Eve can no longer return there. And the garden was the place where God had dwelt with Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the cool of the day, um, when it says that they heard God uh, walking in the cool of the day, that implies that he had been there before, that they were um, you know, used to hearing him, they recognized the sound. And so God apparently was dwelling with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but when they sinned, they were removed from the garden, removed from God's presence, and the cherubim were placed at the entrance of the garden to prevent them from returning to that place of God's presence now that they had sinned and been exiled from the garden. And so uh, the next place in the Bible that you hear about the cherubim is in the book of Exodus in the instructions about the building of the tabernacle. So there they are again in this place where God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. There are the cherubim reminding us both of the Garden of Eden and of God's presence. And so here they are also in the temple, not only in the Holy of Holies, but also carved um, all, all over uh, a portion of the inside of the temple. There are cherubim um, all throughout, and there are also uh, palm trees, blooming flowers, uh, again, gold. All of these things are meant to remind us of the Garden of Eden, and uh, therefore are meant to remind us about the, the place and the time where God originally dwelt in, 
in a place with his people, as he's doing again in the temple, as he did in the tabernacle. So all of that imagery is meant to recall the Garden of Eden. But it also, um, because we have the whole Bible now, it also points us forward to the new creation and to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. I, I told you that we would come back to this idea that the in verse 20, that the Holy of Holies, the innermost place where only the high priest was allowed to go and he was only allowed to go once a year, um, that room in the temple was a cube, right? Length, width, and height, all the same length. The only other place in Scripture where there is a structure that is a cube is in Revelation 21 when we are told about the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city that comes down out of heaven from God uh, to the new earth in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21:16 says the city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. All right, so the, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, is itself a cube. Why is it described as a cube? It's because the New Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies, the whole city. The Holy of Holies is not just a tiny place inside the temple, inside the city. The whole city itself is the Holy of Holies, meaning the whole city itself is the dwelling place of God, and that is where the people of God are going to dwell, as Revelation 21 also makes really clear. That's where the people of God are going to dwell in the presence of God, no longer with the presence of God restricted to a, a, a small place that only one person can access one time a year. Of course, God is everywhere, but you know what I'm saying in, in terms of where God makes his, his presence known among his people. Now in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem, the whole city is the holy of holies. The whole city is the dwelling place of God. In fact, uh, it even goes on to say, Revelation 21, 22, John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So there's there's no need for the temple in the new for any kind of temple in the new creation because the whole point of the temple was to provide a specific and somewhat restricted place for God to dwell in the midst of his people so that they could offer sacrifices and holy people could come into the holy place and have some kind of fellowship and communion with God. And uh, in the New Jerusalem, there, you, you won't need that anymore because God's presence uh, will be dwelling with us um, unmediated in the sense of there's no priests between us and God. There's no, um, there's no physical building that restricts who can get how, how close to God. Uh, of course, we have Jesus who is God in the flesh. He's the one mediator between God and man. Um, but there's no, there's no um, earthly priesthood, right? There's only Christ the high priest as our mediator between us and the Father. And so uh, we will dwell in his presence and there'll be no need for a temple because as the earlier part of Revelation 21 uh, says, God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him and he will be uh, our God and we shall be his people. Um, and uh, then finally, the last couple of verses, verse 37 and 38 says, In the fourth year the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Zeev, 
And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts, and according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Now, um, at the least, that signifies this was a massive construction project. We saw in the previous chapter how many people uh, Solomon had laboring, working to bring this about, um, and it still took seven years. Also might be significant um, that it was seven years that it took because uh, seven years is the number of completion in the Bible, uh, the seven days in a week, the six days of creation plus one day of rest, um, that this is the number of completion. It was, uh, this is the fullness of the building of the tabernacle. Also might be, as some have suggested, um, a uh, meant intentionally to recall God's um, creation of the heavens and the earth in six days with a seventh day of rest uh, because as some have argued uh, the, the tabernacle and the temple is sort of a mini cosmos a mini universe um, and so it's the and and just as god rested um, on the seventh day uh, after the completion of creation so he would come in a sense to rest in the temple. So something interesting to think about. But um, one of the main things we need to remember is um, the temple and the tabernacle were ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who came to dwell in the midst of his people. And uh, when he died and rose and ascended into heaven, he sent the spirit to dwell inside of his people, inside of believers, so that now we are a temple, both individually as uh, individual Christians and corporately as the church, the body of Christ, we're being built into a, a holy temple, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2. And uh, one day we will dwell in the presence of God with no need for a temple because uh, he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him in the new Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies itself. And to that we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.